We've come to uh, this final section, if you want to say, uh, this great salvation that Paul has been declaring to us in the book of Romans. Chapter 5, verses 1 to 11 is what we're going to cover this morning. I, I titled this morning's message, The Benefits of Justification by Faith. We've been spending a lot of time uh, talking about justification, that it's apart from works, it's not anything that we can do uh, to gain this right standing before God. Men try it, women try it. They try to do everything they can to somehow believe that God's going to accept them. And, and often it's based upon their efforts and their works and what they think they can do for God. And justification by faith is what it says. It comes by way of faith. It doesn't come by way of works. We started this letter with two key verses, and I've brought you back to these verses a number of times so far. But in verses, uh, chapter 1, verse 17, we read, For in it, speaking about the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. As it is written, the just shall live by faith, or the justified shall live by faith. And then it goes on to say this, and it's quite the contrast. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Those are two key verses to what we've been covering so far in the book of Romans. Looking back to chapter 1, we know that Paul first told us that the Gentiles, that they stand guilty before God. And then what you see, and often when you're reading your Bibles, you see this word, therefore. Do you know how many times you see that as you're reading and it says, and therefore. And it's because of what was just said before that. Well, there's eight times that we've seen this word, therefore, up to our text this morning. I want to look at those and I want to remind you of where we've come from and where we're going to be today. In verse, uh, chapter 1, verse 24, after Paul made this great declaration that all Gentiles in this world stand guilty before God, it says in verse 24, therefore, God also gave them up to uncleanness in the lust of their hearts to dishonor their bodies among themselves. If you get to the end of chapter 1, it goes through this whole list of these, what we might call gross and terrible sins, ones that we've done, ones that we've taken part in. You see, that's what makes this gospel message so powerful and so glorious to you and I, because we've been saved from these things. Look at verse 28. And even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over to a debased mind to do those things which are not fitting, being filled with all unrighteousness, sexual immorality, wickedness, covetousness, maliciousness, full of envy, murder, 
strife, deceit, evil-mindedness. They are whisperers, backbiters, haters of God, violent, proud, boasters, inventors of evil things, disobedient to parents, undiscerning, untrustworthy, unloving, unforgiving, unmerciful. And then it says this, who knowing the righteous judgment of God, that those who practice such things are deserving of death, and not only do the same, but also approve of those who practice them. That's a hard portion of Scripture to read. But that's you and I before Christ. We've partaken of these things. It was who we were. In chapter 2, Paul makes the declaration that the Jews also stand guilty before God. We see another one of those therefores in chapter 2, verse 1. Therefore, you are inexcusable, O man, whoever you are who judge. For in whatever you judge another, you condemn yourself. For you who judge practice the same thing. The Jews in all of their religion. And the Jews and these practicing Jews were quite often the ones that were quick to judge those Gentiles. Quick to judge those that didn't have what they had. And in a sense, they were condemning themselves in their judgment of others because they were practicing and really doing the same thing. Look at verse 21. You therefore who teach another, do you not teach yourself? You who preach that a man should not steal, do you steal? And then in verse 26, another therefore. Therefore, if an uncircumcised man keeps the righteous requirements of the law, will not his uncircumcision be counted as circumcision? In other words, to the religious Jew that held so much stock in the fact of his keeping the law and having the outward circumcision of the flesh, yet he would look down upon the Gentile who didn't have God's law, wasn't held to the responsibility of circumcision. And here he's basically saying, would not his uncircumcision account for righteousness if in fact he kept the law? He, he was making a statement against the religious Jew. The problem with, or the problem for mankind, all of mankind, is that no one is ever able to keep God's law perfectly. The righteous requirement of the law is one that, in a sense, it slew you and I. It actually brought us to the place where we couldn't do it. There's no way that I could live up to this. And it, and it really killed us. God's law, as good and as just as it is, it slew mankind. In Romans 3.20, we see another therefore. Therefore, by the deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified in God's sight. For by the law is the knowledge of sin. Do you see the purpose? Do you see why God gave it? It was to expose our sin. It was to show man 
his sin and, and, and make it more apparent. You see, when you write out a law and then you read the law, it makes it more apparent that you're doing wrong. And even before the law, man had a law unto himself because he had his conscience and he had his, his own heart that he had to contend with before God. Man was incapable of ever doing enough good to come into a right relationship with God. After all this bad news, what I just read, Jews guilty, Gentiles guilty, and that list of all of this bad news, it actually prepares us for the good news, doesn't it? It's almost like when you hear how bad it really is, it makes what's good even better. It makes it stand out in a greater way. And here's the good news of it all. God made a way. God made a way for mankind to be able to, to, to come into a relationship with the living God. And not by His own efforts, not by His works, but by what He has done for us. He gave mankind hope. He gave us hope. He gave us this way of escape from our sin. And here's the good news. He did it out of sacrificial love. Unconditional love. He did that for you and I without anything in return. He just simply said, I love you. I died for you. I desire that you would have a renewed relationship with me. Not because you deserve it. Not because of what you could do for me, but all because of my unconditional, sacrificial love for you. Do this sometime, maybe as you're reading your word. Uh, pick up your Bible and start reading in chapter 1, verse 18, where we started this morning. And read it all the way to chapter 3, verse 20. And then see if you don't experience a great sigh of relief when you come to chapter 3, verse 21. Verse 21 starts out with the word, but now. That word, but, and I've brought this up, the buts in the Bible. The buts in the Bible are the hinges on the door that open up the, the blessings, that storehouse of blessings of God. Whenever you see a but in the Bible, it's usually a good thing. Look for the buts in the Bible and look what it says in verse 21 of chapter 3. But now, after all of that bad news, the righteousness of God apart from the law is revealed, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. In other words, the law and prophets foretold of this righteousness that would come. It wasn't any New Testament, just a New Testament thing. Even the law and the prophets, the Old Testament, spoke of this righteousness of God apart from the law. Even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ to all and on all who believe, for there is no difference. He's speaking about Jew and Gentile. But now, that's the sigh of relief for all of us. And then for the next ten verses, 
we see this incredible, merciful, and gracious act of God where he declares that a person could be made right through faith in Jesus Christ. Justification by faith. Being justified or made right by faith in Jesus Christ. Romans 3.28, there's another therefore. Therefore, we conclude that a man is justified by faith apart from the deeds of the law. We conclude that, Paul says. In chapter 4, Paul knew that he needed to defend his statements in those last 10 verses. He needed to defend those statements to his fellow Jew, that religious Jew, that was going to come and question those statements that Paul just made about justification by faith alone, apart from the law, apart from works. It would not have resounded well in their ear. They would have thought, that doesn't seem right. Why would God have given us this law? And we've lived our whole life trying to be diligent to it and to follow after it. And you're telling us that it's by faith alone? Apart from the law? It doesn't make sense, Paul. And so Paul goes into this whole thing of really defending that, those statements that he made. He used Abraham. He used King David as the examples, the patriarchs of the Jews. And he points to them as the example. In chapter 4, verse 2, he says, For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the Scripture say? Abraham believed, believed God, and it was accounted to him for righteousness. He just made a very important statement to the Jew. That Abraham, the father of faith, was not justified by his obedience. He was not justified by his works. It wasn't because he put his son Isaac on the altar that God justified him. He justified him before that because of his belief in him and belief in the promises that God had given to him. In Romans 4, 6, he used David uh, to describe, he says, the blessedness of a man to whom God imputes righteousness apart from works. David, what a great example. The king of Israel. They, they would have looked to King David, but they would have known his past. They would have known his sin and his failures, even as a great king, and the things that he fell to. And here is David himself writing, How blessed is the man! where the Lord doesn't impute that sin to him. David was the, the recipient of God's grace in his own life. And the recipient of being able to say that he was made right in the eyes of God by faith alone. It had nothing to do with his perfect walk as a king. Just like you and I could say. Then we come to Chapter 4, verse 16, with another therefore. Therefore, it is a faith that it might be according to what? What does it say in your Bibles? That it might be according to grace, so that the promise might be sure to all the seed, not only to those who were of the law, 
speaking about the Jew, but also to those who are of the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. Verse 22, and therefore it was accounted to Abraham for righteousness. Paul quoting from Genesis 15, 6. We finish chapter 4 in verses 23 and 25. Look what it says. Now it was not written for Abraham's sake alone that this righteousness was imputed to him, but also for us. Also for us. It shall be imputed to us who believe in him who raised up Jesus our Lord from the dead, who was delivered up, speaking about to the cross, because of our offenses and was raised because of our justification. What an incredible act of love on God's part for you and me. What an incredible gospel. I mean, look what he's done. I hope that every one of us here this morning, even as we are lifting up song before the Lord, we're actually rejoicing in our hearts. Nobody wants to see a bummed out Christian. Hey, I'm a Christian, yeah, 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 yeah. Who wants to see that? We have everything to be rejoicing in if you know him as Lord and Savior. If you don't know him, well, you, you should be pumped. But if you know him, we have everything to rejoice in. We come to chapter 5 this morning, verses 1 to 11. Some have referred to these 11 verses as the results of your justification by faith. Others say it's the benefits of justification by faith. Others see it as the effectiveness of the faith method of justification. I think there's some truth in all of that. We finish chapter 4 and we start chapter 5 with what? Another therefore. Therefore, because of everything that he just told us about justification by faith, how a person comes into a right relationship with Jesus Christ by faith alone, now he says, therefore. This is the eighth time that Paul has given us one of those. Look at verse 1 of chapter 5. Therefore... Having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. This, therefore, is actually taking us from the doctrine of justification by faith in chapter 4 to the results and the benefit or the fruit or the effectiveness of our justification in chapter 5. This is where it starts getting really good. This is where we have so much to rejoice in. Paul 
starts with the words in verse 1, having been justified by faith. We have peace with God. He's speaking as if it's already done. It's already a done deal. If I said to you, I have been to the bank, you'd say, well, you've already been there. You know, if I say I'm going to the bank, well, you haven't been there yet. You know, I, I've all, here Paul is saying that having been justified by faith, we have peace with God. The peace that he's talking about here is that the war ended. When did the battle end for you? When did your battle, if you want to say, between you and God end? When did you come to that place where you said yes to Jesus Christ? That when that day came, that's when the battle ended. You gave your life to Christ and the battle stopped. There was no more warring between you and God. No more running away from Him. No more telling that Christian, I don't want to hear that. You know, no more just, the battle ended. Having been justified by faith, we have peace with God. This peace with God is not something that we hope to have in the future. But it's something that we actually possess now. Here and now. In this life as Christians. This peace is also not just a, a bunch of subjective feelings or a state of mind that we're in as Christians. You know, I mean, it's just all these feelings of peace. Not in this text here. It's, it's a peace that actually results from a new relationship that you have with God. You were once an enemy, and now you're not. You see, you've come into this new relationship with the living God. You have this right standing before God. You once were an enemy of God, and now you're a friend of God. You once were a child of the devil, and now you're a child of God. You once were a child of wrath, and now you're a child of righteousness. Wow. Look what God has done. Back in chapter 2, verse 9, Paul says this, Tribulation and anguish upon every soul of man who does evil, of the Jew first and also of the Greek. But then he says this in contrast, but glory, honor, and peace to everyone who works what is good, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Which one do you want? Tribulation and anguish or glory, honor, and peace? There's the contrast for those that have given their life to Christ. Romans 3.17 and the way of peace, they, speaking about Jew and Gentile, they have not known. 
the way of peace. You see, if you've given your life to Christ, you know the way of peace. You've come to understand the peace that you have between you and God. You're, you're in that place. And it's a great place to be. But the question that we could ask if there were anyone here this morning that could say, I don't know that I do have peace with God, that's a good question to answer. And I'll give you the answer simply. You just simply need to give your life to Jesus Christ. Accept Him as your Lord and Savior. Ask Him to forgive you of your sin, and you will have peace with God. It's also important for us to know that a person first needs to have peace with God this way. It first starts this way before you can ever have peace with God at the level in your heart and mind and soul here on this earth when you're going through trials and tribulations of life. You see, that's the peace of God. And we all need that daily as Christians, don't we? But it starts first with the peace with God. In the book of Philippians, in chapter 4, verse 7, the Apostle Paul wrote this. He says, Be anxious for nothing, Christians. I inserted that. But in everything by prayer and supplication. Do you do that? Do it with thanksgiving. And let your, your requests be known to God. If we will do that and approach trials and tribulations in life that way, Paul says the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. Wow. <laughs> I mean, if I, if I just do that, I can experience that peace. You see, there's many times we don't have it, even as Christians. We might have peace this way, in our relationship with God, but we don't have any peace of soul, peace of mind. Man, I just, I'm a wreck. I need God's peace. Paul continues in verse 2 by telling us something else that we have through this peace. Look at verse 2. Through whom, all, through whom also we have access by faith into this grace in which we stand and rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Paul's building upon this whole thing of these benefits of our justification. Remember, he's sitting down writing this letter out, and I think his heart is just getting overwhelmed with the thoughts that he's writing down through whom also we have access by faith. Again, we're talking about this relational thing that we have between us and the living God when you give your life to Christ. That it actually gives you access by faith into the grace in which we stand. 
This word access literally means the leading or bringing into the presence of. It'd be like, it'd be like ushering somebody into the presence of the king. There are certain requirements to get in front of that king. And we have access. Because of this new relationship that we have with God, we have access by faith into this grace. Paul wrote in Ephesians 2.8, For by grace are you saved through faith. Not only is it by grace that you've been saved, but it's this grace in which we stand as believers. We're, for by grace are you saved, but we also stand in this grace. I don't stand in my relationship with God on my own merit, nor do you. It's not because of uh, you know, what you're continuing now to do for him now that you're a Christian. But we actually stand in the grace. It, 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 as a matter of fact, his grace is new every day to us. It, it's, it's poured out upon us afresh every day. We need more of his grace. We can't minister without his grace. We can't do anything apart from his grace. Not only do we have peace and access by faith into this grace, but it goes on to say, but we also rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Rejoicing. The rejoicing here is a word that is actually speaking of outwardly expressing your joy. Actually, as a Christian coming before God just daily do you come before with a thankful heart God thank you for saving me I want to open up your word today because I want to read about you and what you've done for me I want to spend time throughout the day thinking about songs in my heart and my mind of you praising you for what you've done rejoicing in hope of the glory of God it's an outward expression of joy is what Paul is writing here in this letter. But it's also an inward joy that we feel. Wow. Man, I'm just so full of joy. Uh, let me ask you the question, though, this morning. Are you rejoicing in your salvation? When's the last time you put some thought to that? Are you rejoicing in the hope of the glory of God. You know that word hope. I've shared about it quite a few times. Confident expectation. The word literally means that on the basis of this hope of the glory of God, we can rejoice. That's what it's saying. In other words, the object of this rejoicing is our hope of glory. What's the hope of glory for you? Well, someday you're going to be in your glorified body, in the presence of the Lord for eternity. 
Are you looking forward with confident expectation for that day? Are you anticipating it? You see, that's what hope really is in Scripture. It's things that we're assured of as Christians. It's, it actually means certain confidence. It's confident expectation. It's confident anticipation. Are you anticipating that day that you're going to be in your glorified body with the Lord for eternity? And all of that we're talking about here, all of the, this gospel message is going to be brought to a head when you're in your glorified body in eternity. Look what Paul goes on to say in verse 3. And not only that, it's like he, he, he's I, I got more to say. And not only that, but we also glory in tribulations. Whoa! Wait a second. It was sounding so good. And now we're, we're talking, that almost sounds sick. You know, glorying in tribulations. I mean, try to say that to a non-believer. Are we glory in tribulation? Really? You're weird. But we also glory in tribulations knowing that tribulation produces perseverance. And perseverance character. And character hope. Paul doesn't just say that we are going to have tribulations as Christians, but we glory in tribulations. That even sounds worse, doesn't it? We actually glory in them. <laughs> wow. It's this hope that we possess as Christians that enables us to glory in tribulation. It's this confident expectation that something greater is coming. That I'm with expectation waiting for that day. And all of that goes on in this life and all the trials and tribulations and hardships, you know what? It doesn't even compare. It won't even mount up against what I have in eternity. It's worth it. And I'll rejoice in it because you know what? I know that my Lord is working something good in me. And I won't even grow unless God tests my faith. He's a good heavenly Father that wants to work in us and He does it in a very patient way. But He does it in a very precise way and and He knows exactly what He's doing. The Apostle Peter, he was a man that learned a a lot about suffering in life. He wrote in 1 Peter 5.10, he says, But may the God of all grace, who called us to His eternal glory by Christ Jesus, after you have suffered a while, perfect, establish, strengthen and settle you after you have suffered a while. We all understand that to varying degrees. 
the sufferings of this life, the tribulations of this life, and they're real, and they hurt, and it's hard, and we don't downplay it as crazy. Yeah, we just, we just have a big grin on our face when we're going through it. No, we cry. We feel pain. We go through all these difficulties of life, but we go through them with hope of the glory that's to come. This word tribulations is actually translated in a number of different translations as sufferings, afflictions, and troubles. Anybody had any of those this week? We're not exempt from them, are we, as Christians? God doesn't say, well, now you're a child of God, you don't have them anymore. But we go through them, and it's different for the believer. Paul is saying in this verse that we not only endure these tribulations, but we also rejoice in them, knowing what they will produce in us. Is that your mindset? Towards the tribulations and trials in your life, that God is working perseverance? Another word for perseverance is steadfastness. That God is developing a steadfastness within you as His child. And he can't do it unless he allows you to go down some hard roads. You know, some of you, I know some of you are thinking right now, you're probably thinking, I'll I'll give it a try. Just don't give me the trials. I'll I'll let you do it a different way, God. You don't want to go down that road. We don't welcome it necessarily, but we know that it comes. But out of this perseverance... He's also going to produce a character in you. He's going to grow your character. You've met those that have suffered much. You've met them. You've talked to those believers. You've heard their testimonies. You've read their books. And you see this strong character in them as Christians. And you want it. And you desire it. And you wish you could be like them. But if you knew that they had to go by way of trials and difficulties and struggles and hardship, like the Apostle Paul, like what he wrote of his testimony, and that what God built in him, that character that we would desire, God says you're not going to get there unless you're willing to go that road. This tested or this approved character, Paul goes on to say, it produces hope. Knowing that tribulation produces perseverance and perseverance character and character hope. We're confident that God is working in our lives. That's that hope. We're confident that He's molding and that He's shaping our character, our perseverance, our steadfastness. We're not going to give up. We're going to keep pressing on no matter what. No matter how much this world can throw at me, I'm going to keep pressing on, Lord, with Your grace, with Your help, in the hope of the glory that I have set ahead of me. And then look what He says in verse 5. 
Now hope does not disappoint. Because the love of God has been poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit who was given to us. If hope were not sure, we would have no confidence that any good was going to come out of our suffering. If we didn't have any real guarantee, no real hope or strong confidence that God has something greater for us, we might get a little disappointed. Now hope, and the hope that Paul is talking about here, it doesn't disappoint. How can we be sure that all of life's trials are for your good? This is how we know. Because the love of God has been poured out in your hearts by the Holy Spirit, which He has given to us. God's love. Supernatural love. Eternal love. Sacrificial love. Unconditional love. Has been placed in your hearts the day you gave your life to Christ. By His Holy Spirit, He placed that love in you. Incredible. God that created the heavens and the earth is the God that came and made residence within you. And by the sheer fact that He made residence in you by His Holy Spirit, His love dwells inside of you and you experience that every time you draw near to God. God, I want, to exp- I, w- I want to know your love in a greater way. You know how you can know God's love in a greater way? If I asked you to put it down on paper to explain to me how much does God love you, you might have a problem. You might have a really a hard time expressing it in words. If, if, if I said, how much does God love you, and I just went like this, what does that remind you of? Him hanging on that cross, nailed to that cross. This is how we perceive the love of God, that He laid down His life for us, and we ought also to lay down our life for one another. You want to be able to grasp how much God loves you? Look to the cross. Look what He did for you. That love has been poured out in your heart by the Holy Spirit. It dwells in you. And what's even more incredible about all of this is that He did this. He drew us out of this world, this dark world, when we were lost in our sin. We didn't even deserve it. We were helpless. We were without hope. And then in due time, Christ came into this world for the ungodly in the appropriate time, in the perfect timing. He came into this dark world and became light in this world and went to the cross for us. That's love. 
verse 6 to 8, look what Paul goes on to say. For when we were still without strength, he, he's speaking, he's, he's, he's going on from what we we're just talking about here in verse 5. For when we were still without strength, in due time Christ died for the ungodly. For scarcely for a righteous man, that righteous man would be an honest or a dependable man, one would, uh, will one die? Yet perhaps for a good man, speaking about somebody that is kind and loving and, and a, even a lovable person, someone would even dare to die. In other words, it's conceivable that somebody might give their life up for a good man, for somebody that's loving and lovable. That's all something we could even comprehend. People do it. Even non-Christians would give their life up for somebody. But how about if that person violated you or a family member? How about if they violated somebody in your family? How easy would that be for you to give up your life for that person? In my mind, I say, no way. Not going to happen. I can't do it. I could do it for one of my daughters whom I love, my wife. There's no way I could do it for a person that violated me. But God demonstrates his own love towards us while we're still sinners. Christ died for that whole list that I just read in the beginning. That ugly list. It's the ultimate proof of God's love towards mankind. He did it while you were still a sinner. Christ died for us. Incredible gospel. And then he goes on to say in verse 9, Paul says, much more than... He just he can't stop. Much more than having now been justified by His blood, we shall be saved from wrath through Him. Saved from wrath. We're not appointed to wrath. Remember what we read in 118 about the wrath that is coming upon this world that has rejected Christ. For their unrighteousness. John 3.36 says this, He who believes on the Son has life. He who believes not on the Son has not life, and the wrath of God abides on him. One of two places that the, everyone in this world stands. The wrath of God abides. But we're told in 1 Thessalonians 5.9, writing to Christians, Paul says, For God did not appoint us to wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. We don't stand under God's wrath. We're not appointed to the wrath that is coming upon a Christ-rejecting world. He's delivered us from wrath. 
What a demonstration of his love for mankind. He's not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. The only condition for being saved from God's wrath is that we need to be justified by Jesus Christ's blood. There's no other way. It's by faith in His blood, by faith in Him, by faith in the cross. It's the only way. Paul takes this even a little further in verses 10 and 11, and we'll close with this. If we have been justified by His blood and saved from wrath to come, verse 10 says, For if when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of His Son, much more, having been reconciled, you shall be saved by His life. What we were and what we are are two different things. What you used to be and what you are now as a Christian are two different things. Or at least they should be. Paul goes from the present justification by God, which happens the moment when you give your life to Christ. That's a position that God puts you. He justifies you. He makes you right. He accredits and gives to your account His right. It's it's a position that He puts you into the moment you believe. And He goes from there to talking about this being reconciled by the death of His Son It's then that we fully realize the greatness of our salvation. When you are standing in the presence of God someday, that full circle of reconciliation is going to be fully seen in your glorified body. You've been reconciled to God. What was destroyed by man's sin and man's failure, God brings its full circle by His blood and brings it back so that you can come and stand before God reconciled back into a right relationship with God. We've already experienced reconciliation now in this life, here and now. For when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of His Son. When we were enemies, when we were hostile, when we were content to be left alone. I don't want this God stuff. That's not for me. I don't need it. He calls us out of darkness into His marvelous light and then reconciles us. And then look at verse 11. And not only that, Paul writes, it's like Paul can't stop. And not only that, and he writes you know, something else down, but we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, 
through whom we have now received the reconciliation. Reconciliation is when man is brought back into harmony with God. It all happened through the work of the cross. Sin separated and then God brings it back around. Paul, and I will close with this, out of 2 Corinthians 5.17, Paul wrote about this reconciliation. This is what he says uh, in this letter. He says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. I hope that everyone here has experienced that verse in their life. You have a whole new reason for living. There's a whole other other motivation about life. Why I'm here and where I'm going. Behold, all things have become new. Now all things are of God, who has reconciled us to himself through Jesus Christ and has given us the ministry of reconciliation. Oh, the Lord has given me. He's given you the ministry of reconciliation. You can actually go out and tell somebody what God has done in you. That they can be reconciled to God. They can come into a relationship with the living God they can have forgiveness of sins. He goes on to say that is that God was in Christ, reconciling the world to himself, not imputing their trespasses to them, and has committed to us the word of reconciliation. Now then, we are ambassadors for Christ. As though God were pleading through us, we implore you on behalf of, On Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. For he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. That's what we have covered from chapter 1 of Romans to chapter 5, verse 11, so far. That's what he's done. That's how great your salvation is. If anybody leaves this church after these teachings of these five chapters and you think you're going to get to heaven by your works, then I'm going to have you go through all the studies up to this point again. You've got to go online, listen to all of them again. Do it all over again. Because I think, at least in my mind, I've driven the point home. And, I, and that's what I wanted to do. Because when I, when I started out this book, I said, you know what? I want us to know what we believe and be able to give us support for what we believe because there's a lot of false stuff out there. There's a lot of stuff that'll mess with your head. Very clear. And it's very simple, really. He's done it all for you and I. We hope you have enjoyed today's study. For more information on teachings, events, worship times, and location, please visit our website, ccfwinstonsalem.com.
From Pastor Greg and all of us at Calvary Chapel Fellowship, thank you for listening and being part of our study through God's Word. Thank you.